0: All right. So, one last time going through church history and, uh, and, I, and I've said this before, but I want to encourage you guys. I, I, you know, I'm having fun. I know you guys are having fun. I have no problem with in the fall if I want to come back and, and pick this up for we leave off. golf. But I also really like Bible-focused, interactive Sunday school classes. That's, that's really kind of more where, where my passion is at with this. So, if we want to take a, a break from this for for a semester and, and like I don't know, look at a Bible book, that would be that would be some fun difference. So chew on that and, and let me know. I'm
1: for it. I just don't have to chew. I I would
0: be for it. Okay, great. Did you go? We're going to
1: get to the Renaissance and then
0: stop. That my heart. Oh. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's fine. Let's look. You got you, you you've got like three months to think <laughs> about what what you might want to study and all that stuff. I'm just tossing that out. All right. Today we're finishing off the 13th century, we're finishing off that Age of Crusades, and we're going to talk about the last Crusades, and poor Randy, who has just been Crusade boy, and he really, you know, he's the one that really wants to talk about the Crusades all the time, he's not going to be here today as we finish it off, so. You can get the, you can get the, the uh, recording, Randy, I don't know why i look at that. Right. so, as we're finishing this off, before we get to what Sarah refers to, what do you call it, the rena, the what? Renaissance. There really is an intellectual explosion that's been going. On. There have been intellectuals throughout the Middle Ages. There's really kind of a, a clump of, of explosions of intellect going on right now within the Middle Ages. For instance, you got Roger Bacon, uh, who, was, who was a teacher. And I, I list this date, 1256, as the date that he, he becomes a Franciscan. I mean, technically, that's the point where he stops teaching, stops publishing. But it's also the point where a lot of his stuff starts catching on popularly. But he was born in 1214, he's been a student of a very famous teaching bishop in England who had written books on astronomy, on optics, all, all sorts of things like that. And Bacon himself started teaching at Oxford and later on at the University of Paris, focusing lectures on Aristotle. Now, I say that, and, and we might be tempted to go, okay, whatever. But is there anything about that statement, that he's teaching at Oxford, teaching on Aristotle, that at this stage in history you should go, huh. Okay, maybe now. If you remember, the Roman Catholic Church at this point is burning Aristotle. They're, they're, they're burning all, all of these, these great Greek non Christian books. They're like, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't be teaching this. And yet, on the British Isles, they're going to Rome on this sort of thing. We've already talked about that you've got these monks on their skiffs doing commando raids in the middle of the night, right? They've, for centuries, they have now been hitting the continent, stealing Aristotle. Stealing Socrates, stealing Archimedes from monasteries and libraries that are are decrepit on the continent, and hiding them in different places. So that, not so that people can't read them, but so that the Catholic Church can't burn them, right?
1: Okay, so you're saying it's a big deal because he was a
0: Franciscan, not that they're teaching it at a university. Or is the church... No, I'm saying that he, he's not a Franciscan when he's teaching. Oh, okay, so the church is uh, controlling what's being
1: taught at the universities at this time, too. Oh,
0: yeah. The idea that you would be teaching teaching from a pagan text at a Christian university. Well, how would you feel, how do you think Christians, evangelical Christians would feel if they heard that um, a Christian uh, school in Peoria was using as a primary text a pagan textbook. But he's not
1: teaching at
0: a Christian school. Yes, he is. He's teaching at Oxford. Okay. Yeah. Oxford is a flamingly Christian school. The University of Paris is a flamingly Christian school. At this time, universities were specifically Christian schools. Okay. We don't think of them that way. Harvard started off Crazy Christian. Do you think of Harvard as a Christian college? No. A
1: good portion of the
0: college initially had. Yeah. Like we talked about a little while ago, most of what we now see as the a, as a concept of a modern university started as a way to train priests who don't have access to a lot of these books themselves. And they're like, okay, your cathedral should start a school so that priests can go through your cathedral and, and, and their cathedral school to learn a lot of this stuff. They're not going to have their own books to learn prior to this, and they're probably not going to have their own books as they go off for the rest of their lives. So you guys have the library, teach them, and then send them off. So pretty much most schools at this stage were Christian schools. For for the University of Paris, which was considered very liberal with a lot of these different things, for Oxford to be teaching from Aristotle was a bit um, controversial at this time, because they were supposed to be Christian, and here they're teaching Aristotle. Anyway, so at the same time that Rome is condemning Aristotle, Roger Bacon is teaching Aristotle to a generation of British scholars. His whole focus is on the idea of learning from the past with a vision for the future. How do we actually apply all this? How do you put it all together? From Aristotle, we learned the idea that you really need to be experimenting with things. And that may not seem like a big to-do to us, But prior to this, the whole idea of how you do scientific inquiry is to cite what other people have thought of. So you say, Augustine says this, and the church tradition says that, therefore this is true. Now how do we put this part of Augustine with that part of um, origin and put it together and say, then this must be true? The idea of going, why don't you actually look at the raw data, was kind of unique. He says, no. Aristotle says, look at the raw data. Then again, Aristotle asserted that women had more, had fewer teeth than men and never bothered to look at his wife's mouth to see if that were true, which it isn't, right? But he's like, well, they're smaller. Their mouths can't hold as many teeth. They have, must have fewer teeth. Anyway, but Bacon said, no, you really need to actually analyze stuff. You need to examine an argument. You need to look at the facts. Not just what everybody says. I know everybody says the sun revolves around the earth. Is that the way that works? I know everybody says women have fewer teeth. Is that the way that works? I know everybody says it's like this. Is that the way the actual things work? All men are flesh and blood. Prester John is a man. Therefore, Prester John is flesh and blood, right? You go, instead of what we all just know, Maybe we should examine some of this stuff, right? Is Prester John really a guy? Is there really a guy named Prester John out there? Well, of course there is. Therefore, he must be flesh and blood. Stop. Go back. I don't think that's the way that works. So, actually, let's examine different things. So, by definition, a lot of his work argued for an appreciation of the Greeks and the pagans who have gone before he even cited different Muslim writers with different things, saying, you know, these guys got this part figured out. They're really good at this astronomy thing. We really ought to be able to use this. No, we don't need to we don't need to use their philosophy as if it were scripture, but there is wisdom here, there is knowledge here that we can mine and we can make use of it instead of just knee-jerk dismissing it. And yet make the Bible the basis for pulling it all together. The Bible is the foundation. It's the lens through which you look at the, at the world. Start with Scripture, and then try to understand how all of the actual data connects with the truth that we actually get from Scripture. So, uh, he wrote his major book, the, the Opus Majus, which means major book. So, uh, the, the, the greatest book. Um, was actually written to the Pope. His, his scientific textbook was written to the Pope saying, we really need to change how we look at science. The Church can't divorce itself from science. The Church needs to embrace this and own it. Because right now all we're saying is is we're going to let the best scientists be the pagans. That would be stupid. Help me out. Is there any way that we can maybe apply Roger Bacon nowadays to this idea of going, wait, why are we divorcing ourselves from logic? Why are we divorcing ourselves from being the ones who are writing the science textbooks? Well, uh, if you look. Mormon, uh, they tend to have, like, the the best evangelism, I mean, they have, they have all kinds of things that they can utilize, but we don't want to take on Mormonism. Okay. Business. Yeah, I mean, you can call 1-800 number, and the next day, a Mormon who is trained to explain what Mormonism is will walk to your house and hand you a free Book of Mormon. Wouldn't it be nice? if you could call 1-800-NUMBER and somebody who actually knows how to interact with you with the Bible could bring you a really good Bible and hand it to you for free. No. Yeah, we, we can't do that, though. Because we go, well, would he be a Baptist? Would he be a Lutheran? Would he be Assemblies of God? If he's Assemblies of God, is he going to talk about speaking in tongues? Because I'm not going to be a part of a program where they talk about speaking in tongues. I'm not going to be part of a program where you say you can't speak in tongues. Yes. But you're going to apply this a one-to-one application, can't you? That we tend as Christians to sit there and go, we have tended as Christians, at least in the last century, to sit there and go, well, I'm just pretty much going to let the secular people run with science. And now we're kind of scrambling after with a lot of different things where we're trying to go, no, 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 we can do science too. But if you go to a lot of major universities, which is a little bit, I think, of what Sarah was getting at before, most universities, even a lot of the ones that started off as specifically Christian universities, are very proud of the fact that they're not even remotely Christian universities anymore, because they're science. they're sciencey. they're objective. Roger's like, now we can do this. Thus, a lot of historians will see him as the as the father of modern science because he's like, let's do experimentation, let's not let's talk about hypotheses, let's let's examine stuff. And yet, a lot of creationists will also say he's the poster child of doing science from a Christian slant, from a specifically scriptural slant. Interestingly, he's also the, the arguably the father of modern warfare, because he's the one that figured out how to make gunpowder work uh, through experimentation. And he didn't even kill himself in the process, which means he's good at this. So, after Roger Bacon, we start talking about Europe actually being able to make use of gunpowder, kind of like the Mongols have been doing. We talked about that before. 1256, though, he devoted his life to his calling as a Franciscan monk. And that means that since they are prohibited from owning anything, like books or libraries or paper or any of that kind of stuff, and from publishing books, that's it for Roderick. Once he is 1256 and he wants to go to self to following the Lord, he's done with scholarly work. Why didn't he become a Dominican? That would have been swell. Because he really felt like this was important. He really threw himself into being a Franciscan, and he thought you needed to get rid of him. The Franciscans... There's a famous debate at this time with Franciscans debated with Vatican theologians about whether or not Jesus owned his own clothes. No, this was huge. This was a huge debate. And so the Franciscans took very seriously this idea of, I own nothing. I don't even own this stick. I don't own this clothes. Didn't Jesus say, don't even take a staff with you on your journey? So therefore, he, well, I don't know that he said that you always have to do it like that. I think he was talking about this was... No, don't even own a staff. I don't own a purse. I don't own anything. If anybody comes up and says, could you give me your clothes so that you walk around naked because I'm cold, you have to say, yes, they aren't my clothes. Franciscans own nothing. So you have to be kind of intense about this sort of thing to be a Franciscan. And apparently Roger was kind of intense about this sort of thing. So yes, I wish he'd become a a Dominican too. Because it's not like the Dominicans were like, oh, I'm flamingly rich. But they got to publish books. They got to, uh, to own books. Anyway. Speaking of debates and things, uh, in 1263, something called the Disputation of Barcelona was held. And this is, well, that's when they had Barcelona. Yeah. So if you go to Spain, it's not Barcelona. Barcelona. Um, this was kind of important from an historical perspective. Uh, a, a Dominican named Pablo Cristiani, Paul the Christian, uh, was a convert from Judaism. He'd originally been named Saul, and then when he converted to Christianity, he named himself Paul. See that was kind of, you see what he did there? Which I think was cool. So Christiani uh, informed King James I of Aragon, or Jaime I, if you want to get all Spanish about it. We see James the first, and you go, I don't think of James as a Spanish king kind of name. Do you so Jaime the first, except that he's from Aragon, so it would be Jaime the first, if you want to get all Aragonese about it, except he didn't speak Aragonese, he spoke Catalan. so technically it's Jaume the first. I do all this to say it's a little bit more complicated. When somebody goes James and you go, no, it's Jaime, you go, no, it's Jaume, in a language that nobody speaks anymore, nobody speaks Catalan. Catalan is freaky language, by the way, it's, it's like... Frenchy, Spanishy weirdness uh, So if I call him James 1st Don't sit there and go Well he wouldn't have called didn't call James No, he wouldn't have called John May. Get over. Anyway, so James the is about to go He informs John, May, John May, That he could solve this this Jew problem In Spain by disputing the lack of faith In Christ from their own Talmud Does anybody know what the Talmud is? What's the Talmud? Is it the radio? Yeah, kind of. It's, it's this work of, of Jewish theology compiled uh, after the, the, the destruction of the temple. Who destroyed the temple? Does anybody remember? This is going back like a year and a half. It, yes, yeah. Oh, no, well, he messed up the temple before Christ. But uh, that, was, that was during the, that middle period when uh, be, between the end of the new, Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Then Titus, under the orders of Vespasian, 70 AD, uh, destroyed the temple. After that, the Jews were kind of scattered, uh, kicked out of Jerusalem, and they had to create synagogues more. Where or had to pump up the concept when of synagogues. That's different. when the Romans kicked them out of out of, out of, out of destroyed um, the temple, kicked them out. Uh, eventually, Hadrian kicked them out of Judea entirely and they called it Palestine. Um, but this is where you have no. You have no temple to worship in, and so synagogue worship becomes crucial at this stage of the game. And so rabbis, the guys who teach the synagogue, become crucially important. Thus, you get this Talmud put together that comprises the, the Mishnah, which is the rabbinic teachings about the Torah, and also the Gemara, which is the collected rabbinic commentaries on the Mishnah. And so, you have, as, as the Talmud, you have the Mishnah, and the Gemara. So you go, the Mishnah is their commentaries on the Old Testament, and the Gemara is their commentaries on their commentaries on the Old Testament. So um, you get a couple of steps away from things by the time you, you're reading the Talmud, and, and there are people just study this right in left, and you go, Rabbi Hillel talks about what Rabbi Shemay said, about what Rabbi John said, about what Re- Rabbi Floyd said, about what Moses said, about what God told him. Well, I agree with Shemai, That's because you're a heretic. I'm a Hillel man. I'm sorry. So do
1: some of them just say, "Well, it's just the Mishnah," or, I mean, just I don't know. I was just curious if there's, I
0: mean, because I know there's a lot
1: of disagreements. Oh, there's, a, there's just. Practicing Judaism.
0: Oh yeah. Well, th- that's the and that is fun if you ever read this. The Gemara is filled with disagreements where they're disagreeing with one another. Hillel says this. Shammai says this. This is why Hillel says this. This is why Shammai says this. What? and then they threw rocks at each other, and then went and got a beer, you know, so that's... But seriously, some of these people, they were talking about that they absolutely hated each other, and others, they're just like, and then we all had a worship service, and you just go, yeah. Anyway, so, Christiani said, I can, I can prove the validity of Christ from the Talmud. I can prove that you can absolutely see Christ, not just from the Old Testament, but in the Talmud itself. And, of course, we would also think, well, I think we can see Christ in the Old Testament. And on good commentaries of the Old Testament, yeah, we should probably be able to see this. Yep, I'll show. So, he squared off against a rabbi named Nimonides, or Rabban, which is kind of a contraction of his long name. But Nimonides, he said, We're going to debate this. I'm going to have a nice public debate before the king. And Nimonides won. Nimonides made an awesome, awesome argument every time that. That Christiane would say something, Naimonides would go, but it doesn't have to be like that. You can also look at it like this, which is what a good rabbi does. You can look at it like this, you can look at it like this, you can look at it like that. Or you don't. And when he says, I can prove definitively, you know, I can't prove anything definitively. My whole job is that you can't prove anything definitively from this book. James even agreed that he won. James said he'd never heard an unjust cause so nobly defended. He was impressed. As all get out, he was so <laughs> impressed that the next Sabbath he attended services at the synagogue in Barcelona. That's the size of the synagogue in Barcelona, and the king is there today. I mean, how 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 big is this? That the king went. I'm not becoming a Jew, but I am saying, you guys rock. I'm I'm going to your services this week, which is awesome. Which is why Christianity publicly claimed victory. No, no, I beat him. I mocked the floor of them. Yay for the Dominicans! Yo, wave a pennant. And you go, wait a minute, you didn't win. The king even said you didn't win. So, Nemanides said, I'm going to publish this. I'm going to publish the account of the disputation. I'm going to show my arguments against Christianity. People got to know. Now, he had had the official right of freedom of speech. He even talked with the king. He's like, I will do this disputation if you let me have free speech. You let me say whatever I need to say in this dispute. You can't, I'm walking, I'm walking in front of a Christian king and telling him how I disagree with Christianity. You've got to tell me I get to do that, right? And, and James said, absolutely. I'm going to publish a book up against Christianity. James was like, no, that crosses the line. Now you're actually attacking Christianity. Now you're exiled. Exactly. If you had just stopped at the disputation, everything would have been great. I don't even like Christianity. I probably would have said something about, no, he didn't win. Will you write a book saying that Christianity is wrong? No, you're gone. You don't get to be in Spain anymore. So he wanders around different places and eventually makes his way to Jerusalem, where he established the Rabban synagogue, which is still in operation today, the second oldest synagogue in Israel. Saying, so well, that's kind of cool actually. I mean it's it's sad that he didn't get to stay in Barcelona, but it's cool that the synagogue he has is much bigger, it's much larger, uh, uh, it's a much bigger facility, but it's also just it's had a much larger impact in the world. And, uh, and it's still in operation. It's apparently just an absolute gorgeous building. Anyway. Oh yeah, it, that's
1: yeah. It, that, that's what got him in trouble. Is that book was being circulated oh, okay, in Spain, okay.
0: and it so did actually, actually publish. Oh, well, they burned every copy that they could find, but it did I'm actually so get published. Happy. I think so. Yeah. So, anyway, there's other kinds of explosions going on though, because we've been talking. Oh, intellectual explosion. yay, yeah, this is great. We still have a couple crusades, right? Because we've talked about a bunch of different crusades, but there were nine of them. And we've only talked about seven, plus the northern crusade against the Balkan, plus uh, the French crusade, plus the, yeah, So we got the eighth and ninth crusades. Remember King Louis the Ninth from the other week? This is the guy who bossed the seventh crusade because he ignored the fifth crusade. He did all the same stupid stuff that they did in the fifth crusade. He's like, yeah, 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 no, what, what now? Does it flood? Um, oh, okay, yeah, we hold Damietta. Now let's go to Cairo, because that worked really badly the last time. Let's do that again. It's like, you really? You didn't you didn't do any, like, I don't know, thinking, research, planning? You didn't look up what happened or didn't happen before? Nope. Louis hears that the, the, the Mamluks have conquered Antioch, and Antioch no longer exists as a Christian state. He's like, that's horrible. We let this happen. All this left is little bitty little... Pink Tripoli here, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which doesn't even include Jerusalem anymore, right? Their the capital of Jerusalem is Acre. That's not right. So he's like, "We've got to do something." That strangely, the Crusader states are just not holding their own down there. So we got to have a crusade. I'm going to call for my own crusade, Eighth Crusade. We're going to go take back the Holy Land from the Muslims. That's awesome. Everybody's yay because all the Crusades have worked really well, right? One kind of did. So, he got his brother Charles of Anjou, the king of Sicily, because remember, everything's mixed up nowadays. We we tend to sit there and go, colleges are secular. You know, colleges are, are, are Christian. The most part. Oh, okay. Italy's Italian? No, no. Italy's French. They speak German. <laughs> <laughs> because they're being controlled by the Vikings. Right? <laughs> That's medieval history, right? And hey, Sicily is being controlled by cultural Normans who were Vikings, Norsemen. And they speak Frankish, which is Germanic. So they come from France, like him. So Charles, from France, speaking German, rules southern Italy because he's a Viking. So, anyway, King of Sicily. yeah uh, different sort of things yeah so he gets charles to join in attacking tunis because that's right next door to the holy land right but he sits there he goes yeah let's attack tunis because if you'll notice this is the same sort of funky orange that this is right the people in this part the berbers in this part of africa are related to to the muslims who are in this part of, of spain And the the Muslims in Spain are are kind of open to Christianity, much more so than most of the other ones. They're not as militant. And we might actually be able to convert these guys. If we can convert these guys and send them to help us attack the other ones, we can only bring maybe 10,000 guys. But if we can convert the Berbers to Christianity, then we've got our guys and their guys who live in Africa. In the west side of Africa, quite a bit away. Uh, still. So let's go get him. Yeah, it's a good plan. Good plan. Good plan. So the day after Charles and his troops arrived, Louis, Louis got sick and died. Drank the drinking water. Never drink the water. Don't drink the water. Drank the water. Sick. Dead. day after his brother arrives. See, so well, um, but, um, got a lot of troops here. What do I? What do I do? And they're technically relaying siege to Tunis, but we don't know what to do. And Edward I of England arrives in 1271, just after Charles has signed a treaty with Tunis, ending the Eighth Crusade. That was the Eighth Crusade. So you go, well, that's kind of a bust. You're England. What would you feel? I just brought all my troops down here. We got there, we go, wait, you just signed a treaty? While I was on the ship? I raised taxes for this. I spent a whole year prepping for this. Now it's interesting. Edward I is often referred to as Longshanks, uh, which is uh, which because he's so tall. Longshanks means like long legged. So this is a very tall guy. It's their medieval way of saying high pockets. So tall (laughs) king, high pockets. He was portrayed by Patrick McGoohan in Braveheart, which was about the only historically accurate part of the movie. Love the music, love Scotland, hate the movie because everything's wrong everything's wrong. Every part of that movie wrong. If anything you can picture in your head about that movie, it's wrong. So, <laughs> um, But Patrick McGowan, the guy who played Longshanks, you go, oh, you nailed Longshanks. That is exactly the way he was. Um, Consummate Warrior, absolutely ruthless. Completely, totally, intensely ruthless. Uh, for instance, he brutally conquered Wales, turned Scotland into a vassal state, His son, Edward II, was the first crown prince to be referred to as the Prince of Wales because we've conquered Wales. And we've conquered Wales so much that I'm going to say whoever gets to be the next king, he's automatically the Prince of Wales from now on forever because Wales belongs to me. Intense fellow, Edward I. But he also enforced, he made new laws against usury in England by slaughtering hundreds of Jews. He took out like three, four hundred Jews that that he, he figured out in the span of one week that he just publicly hanged, publicly behead, publicly burned. Because they were often used as moneylenders in the Middle Ages. Because the church had said that Christians should never <coughs> involve themselves in usury. You, not, you need to be careful that you don't um, charge exorbitant rates as a moneylender. And so you say, I don't think I want to get into moneylending because who gets to decide what's exorbitant and what isn't? All the money I actually make is because of the rates I charge. I don't like this rule. I don't know what to do with this. So a lot of Christians kind of stepped away from the banking business, which is when the Jews tended to step into the banking business, which is why Jews in the Middle Ages oftentimes were extremely wealthy. And they spoke their own language. And they tended to stay to themselves. They stayed in their Jewish community, talking their funky-sounding Jew talk, holding all the money. There is a reason, and I don't blame Judaism for it. There is a reason why anti-Semitism exists. Anytime you have somebody who is their own group, who say we are not you, we're holding on to our identity and it's not yours. We dress different, we act different, we talk different. And by the way, we have more money than you do. The majority is going to hate that group. And so, yep, they can take potshots at them. So he slaughtered the Jews and then in 1290 actually uh, issued the Edict of Expulsion officially, brutally, expelling all the Jews from England. It's like, we will have no Jews in England by the end of this year. It took Spain another, what, 200 years to get to that point. So, that's Longshanks. We're going to hear more about Longshanks later. But Longshanks came all this way for a crusade, and he's like, just because Louis died and Charles the diplomat does not mean I don't get to kill people. I've worked really hard on this. I want me a crusade. So, you're going to the Holy Land with me because this Tunis thing was a stupid idea anyway. You know why? Because it was a stupid idea anyway. So he's like, we're launching our own Ninth Crusade. I'm starting the Ninth Crusade from Tunis. And we're actually going to the Holy Land. We're going to go to Cyprus, and then we're going to go to Acre. And Charles, you're coming along with me. Well, I'm kind of done here. You're coming along with me. The the, the Mamluks, the Muslims that came out of, out of Egypt, they are laying siege to Tripoli. We're going to kick their Muslim butt. That's what we're going to go do. So, he split the troops, attacking their army, the Muslim army that's around Tripoli, attacking from Cyprus and from Acre, from two different directions, and he made a deal with the Mongols in Persia, and got them to attack the same people from another direction. So you've got three different armies attacking one besieging army. This guy's brilliant. If Edward weren't such an absolutely evil human being, I would love Edward, but he's an absolutely evil human being. But totally won, destroyed defeated them. The Mongols rode back to Persia, and Edward broke a ceasefire that was supposed to last for 10 years, 10 months, and 10 days. We're gonna get all this back, and nobody gets to kill anybody for 10 years, 10 months, and 10 days. It almost worked! I mean, the caliph said, okay, 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 and yet, at night, sent a Muslim assassin to kill Edward while he slept. And not just an assassin, but one who stabbed him with a poisoned blade. I was say it had to be it, It's totally poisoned. So he's like, all I, all I have to do is scratch you and you're dead, and I'm, I'm going to kill you in the middle of the night while you sleep. So being Edward, he killed the assassin uh, before his own guards even got in there, <laughs> even after getting stabbed with a poisoned blade, From which he got better. He was sick for a while, but he went home and rested and got better because he's trying really hard to be Charles Martel. Remember Charles the Hammer, Martel. That's right. So,
1: so pardon me?
0: It's only a flesh wound. It's only a flesh wound. <laughs> he jumped your arm Okay. So, Edward's very sick for an extended period of time, but gets better, and beats the star out of Scotland. So, poor Scotland. Poor Scotland's going, man, couldn't he have died? Please? Edward II is a wimp. Edward First, so not a wimp. We really would have loved to have Edward II. No, you got Edward I. First. Of course God. Anyway, but after the ceasefire was over, in 1282, the Mamluks took Tripoli, and they destroyed Acre, and the Kingdom of Jerusalem fell. And so, by the time you get to the 1290s, that's it for the Crusader States. There is no Christian presence in the Holy Land, and there are no more Crusades. So the Ninth Crusade, again, arguably one of the more successful ones and yet couldn't hold on to it for any length of time after the after the ceasefire was over. So, Randy, crusades are over. Get over it. There is a crusade in Aragon, uh, but it's, it's basically more like French guys killing Spanish guys. It was much more of a political thing, and uh, it's, it's, it's almost inappropriate to call it a crusade. I mean, they slapped the name crusade on it, but it really was more political than it was uh, spiritual at all. So I'm not even including it. All right. But we're going back to the intellect. There's intellectual explosions going on. There's some good things going on. And so we get to Thomas Aquinas. Do you remember when we talked about Thomas Aquinas with Sarah's thingy? I do. <laughs> Sarah do. That's good. Thomas Aquinas publishes his Summa uh, Theologiae uh, in, in 1274. Or it gets published in 1274, I should say. Um, it's literally impossible. To overestimate the importance that the Summa Theologiae has to to Roman Catholic Theology. It's, you can't overestimate. Um, Pope Pius X in 1914 wrote this, and I know it's a long quote, but let me read it to you. The capital theses in the philosophy of St. Thomas' Aquinas are not to be placed in the category of opinions capable of being debated one way or another but are to be considered as the foundations upon which the whole science of natu- natural and divine things is based. If such principles are once removed or in any way impaired, it must necessarily follow that students of the sacred sciences will be, will ultimately fail to perceive so much as the meaning of the words in which the dogmas of divine revelation are purposed or are proposed by the uh, magistracy, magistracy yeah, of the church. In other words... You can't understand Christianity unless you understand Aquinas. You can't. Which means everybody who's trying to be a good Christian prior to that is out of luck. And anybody who's never read Aquinas is out of luck. Because you are not going to get Christianity at all if you don't understand Aquinas. But more importantly, you can't debate whether or not he's right. You cannot debate it because it's not an opinion. This is the unquestionable truth of God. And I mean that in every sense of the term. I don't mean, oh, well, yeah, well, of course it is. I mean... You can't question Aquinas. You can't deviate one way or another, or else the whole thing falls apart. So they're considering it part of the spiritual Yes. In fact, that's what, uh, well, one bishop, uh, three years after he died, uh, condemned him, saying that he was horribly, horribly wrong, and that the church should get rid of this whole logic thing, because faith has nothing to do with being reasonable. Um, And then the next year, uh, the pope canonized him, and said, no, every university has to teach Aquinas. That's going to be the basis. I don't care if you ever read the Bible. I want you to read Aquinas. And so um, it became the official dogma of the church in 18... something like that? I don't know. In the 1800s, it became, this is the official thing. And then, of course, 1914, you have a book going, it's unquestionable. You can't debate Aquinas. You can only debate things using Aquinas, but you can't ask any questions for this. So do you understand why I say I'm really, I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it is impossible to overestimate how important this is? This is what it's all about from, from a Catholic perspective. Anyway. Bah. Top to Wake up. Wake up. What kind of monk is Aquinas? Look at his robes. What kind of monk is Aquinas? Why do you say that? Other people were black. could be an Augustine. Anything else? He's old a Coke. He's old with Coke. No.
1: <laughs>
0: it's an espresso. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's an inkwell. It's an inkwell. He's old <laughs> an inkwell. And he's got a book because he's Aquinas. He's Aquinas, which means he's always walking around with a book. It's like
1: Anyway. I like Dominican
0: not because it was out because the Dominicans were the intellectual Yep. You can make a good argument just from saying he sounds like a Dominican. If he's going to be a monkey, he's this bright. But if you notice, there's a little white under here, there's white here, there's white there. The Dominicans are the ones that wore black and white. So white cassocks with a black putting thing over it. So he's a Dominican. Born into a wealthy noble family in Sicily. Okay, how many times have you heard that? I mean, that these intellectual giants, these, these various people, born into a wealthy family. Why is that? Why is that important? Education. Yeah, they're they're better educated because you can afford to get books for the guy, you can afford to send him to schools and things. Um, and you can and you are wealthy enough that you can afford to have a kid that's not out there working his fingers to the bone. And so we've got we I've got one kid is a soldier, I've got an it's a couple kids that are off in political office. Yeah, the little guy. We can throw him to school. Sure, why not? He's a funnest kid. you know. And plus, this looks good. So his family says, your uncle is the abbot of the extremely prosperous and extremely important Benedictine monastery at Monte Cassino. Why don't you become the next abbot of Monte Cassino? We're going to send you to Monte Cassino. You learn how to be a good Benedictine monk. This will be awesome. He goes, I want to be Dominican. He studies stuff. But the Benedictines are the ones with all the money. The Benedictines are the ones with all the power. We want you to have money and power. See, your brothers—you got one who's a military guy, you got a couple guys in political office. You can take this part, and we are totally covered. Yeah, but I want to be Dominican. Yeah, but they're poor, and all they do is run around teaching people things.
1: But yeah, that but is poor, Francis.
0: Not <laughs> nobody's as poor as Francis. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, you can have my shoes. It's like nobody's as poor as Francis. He didn't want to be a Dominican. So, his family kidnapped him and held him in, 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 a, in a room for over a year uh, in their tower. Because they're like, we will make you do what we want you to do. We'll, we'll make you be a Benedictine. We'll make you. T- Tell you what, we'll hire a prostitute. She'll come and seduce you. Heck with those vows of chastity. Ah, you can't be a Dominican if you go to your vows of chastity, right? But ah, oh, you can't mean. be a Benedictine. Oh,
1: goodness.
0: Okay. Will I get into trouble if I go? Yeah. Um, alas, alas! If you are part of the, if you are part of like one of these big monasteries and things, by this time in history, sure. Um, it wasn't uncommon at all for, for for monasteries to, since since they're the ones with all the money and they're growing a lot of food, more food than they need to eat as as, uh, as monks and stuff, wasn't at all uncommon for them to say, "Tell you what, village girl, you're hungry." Sleep with me, you get some food. I'm surrounded by a bunch of guys here! I can sleep with them, but that's creepy. She's cute. I've got food, she's hungry. It's God's will. This is why we have the food, to take care of of the poor children of the earth. Actually, it's becoming a lot like that. It's becoming a lot like that. So, yes, in the larger monasteries and things, there's a reason why you keep having these councils, where popes keep coming back like, no, 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 seriously. No simony. No, no usury. Seriously, you don't you don't get paid to do good things to people. You're supposed to, like, show Christian charity to one another. Yeah. I, I make off well for Christian charity. No, 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 no. You're supposed to do it because you care about them because you want to show Christ, not because they give you stuff. Uh-huh. But they give you some good stuff. No. Another council. No really, really got to stop this. According to tradition, though, angels came and ministered to him and protected him so that he didn't, he didn't fall victim. You know, uh, according to one tradition, he actually picked up an iron from the fire and chased the prostitute out of his room. Out, out, I, I strong. So anyway, <laughs> luckily the angels came. Apparently very cute angels came and ministered to him. So eventually his sister snuck him out because she's like, alright, I feel bad that we've imprisoned our brother for over a year. Um, and also, it's, it's kind of funny, and her argument was, <sighs> all right, as bad as it is for him to become a Dominican and choose to do that, be the black sheep of the family. Um, it's becoming worse that we've had to chain up our brother in a room. <laughs> and that, that, that might make us look even a little worse as a family. Um, so the idea that he escaped... And ran off from his imprisonment to the only people who would take him in, the Dominicans. That's that's got a more romantic slice to it. Let's just do that. So helped him to escape. He went on to study at the University of Paris at the same time that Roger Bacon was teaching there. Thank you very much. Which is cool. And he declined the Pope's offer. Remember Pope Innocent IV, kind of a slime ball, but um, Pope Innocent IV said, tell you what, I'll give you a special dispensation to be the Dominican abbot. Of the Benedictine Abbey at Monte Cassino. Too much Monte Cassino went, Wait, who did what? No? You know, wait, said, you can't do that, we're Benedictines! And the Dominicans were all scratched back going, You can't be an abbot of somebody else's. How can you be a poor Dominican and be the abbot of one of the most wealthy monasteries in Italy? But he said, No, 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 no. I'm going to go study. In fact, I'm going to get away from some of you people. I'm going to go study in Cologne. Uh, which is up with the more dramatic people that none of you people in Rome like anyway. So I'm going to go away from from your influence. And while he was in Cologne, kind of like Albert Einstein, everybody thought he was stupid. Albert Einstein, by his teachers, they all thought he was really slow, especially in math. Um, seriously, they thought he was really dumb. And oh, most of his teachers. When he was at work, just up and well, and he was bored by it, and. Even Albert Einstein said there were some things he just was like, I don't care. I don't care about that. Two plus two is four. Whatever. I'm, I'm more interested in bigger concepts than that. So, so I just got bored. I, got, I, remember, I remember my math teacher pulling me out in sixth grade. She pulled me out in the hallway. She's like, am I boring you? And I, well, I, I, was like, I felt really bad about it. I'm like, kind of. We've been studying the same stuff since first grade. Can we do something different? I was trying stuff in my margins, I didn't even realize it. She looked at the stuff in my margins, she goes, that's algebra. I'm like, it's a what? We never studied algebra until we got to junior high, and i, I just was just making up the games with myself. Can you imagine how really, really smart people did? I mean, like like Albert Einstein and, and Thomas Aquinas. So they considered, they're like, he was getting bored with stuff, but also he just didn't talk much, he didn't do much. And so everybody thought he was dumb. they said, they referred to him as a dumb ox. Oh, there comes the dumb ox, because he's a big guy, and he's quiet, and he didn't interact with anybody. But Albertus Magnus, or the great, uh, the head of the school, disagreed, he said, you call him a dumb ox, but I'm telling you, in his teaching, he's one day going to produce such a bellowing that it will be heard throughout the world. I'm telling you, this guy's smarter than all of you put together. Oh, no, he's stupid. No, he really, really is. Eventually, Aquinas even became the head of the University of Paris himself. Very important teacher. while in Paris, took up a debate against the Averroes, uh, who were scholars, followed a Muslim philosopher named Averroes, who had a really long Muslim name, so we called him Averroes, who taught a very skewed version of Aristotelian philosophy. Um, and, and, and I should say, acquiesced himself, a huge fan of Aristotle, called him the philosopher. You know, he's like the guy. But uh, Averroes said, you know, Contrary to Bacon, contrary to Aquinas, Aristotle said that religion and science occupy completely different intellectual spheres. You really shouldn't mix the two. It's ridiculous to even try. In the same way, you might have a soul. Who cares? But your non-personal intellect, that's what survives uh, after after death. It's not like you have a a consciousness. You have intellect, which mingles itself with God, whom Aristotle called thought-thinking-itself. That's God, that's what it is. That's what we need to focus on. Basically focused on all the parts of Aristotle that Aquinas didn't like. And so Aquinas debated him, just, just tore him to shreds. Um, but I should say that other Islamic scholars really didn't like Aurois either. Now so you said there you go, the, the Islamists, the, the Muslims didn't like you, the Christians didn't like you. But we still get a lot of this echoing through the halls of, of scholasticism today, this idea of, well, let's not muddy the waters of science with religion. Or in churches saying, well, let's not undermine the truths of Scripture by saying, well, how does this work with science? We're talking about faith issues. Even churches that debate the difference between the Bible being inerrant versus the Bible being infallible. Remember, we've talked about this before. Inerrant means the Bible isn't wrong. It comes from God. Infallible goes, it could be wrong on all sorts of different things, but it's never going to lead you wrong... In a spiritual sense, so there could be all sorts of inaccuracies and all sorts of contradictions in the Bible, but spiritually, divorce your faith side from your logic side. <laughs> spiritually, it's never going to direct you the wrong way. Let's just all agree on that. I'm like, so it doesn't matter what kind of roadmap I have; I'll still find Chicago, even if it's a roadmap of France. I'll still find Chicago. The roadmap can be completely in error, but it will never leave me any place but Chicago." That's illogical. To so which they say, see, you keep intertwining logic with your religion, and you need to stop that. Anyway, arguably, Thomas's greatest contribution was his Summa Theologicae, theologiae, also called Summa Theologicae, or any other version of the title Complete Theology, which is all that it basically means. Um, it's, it's essentially a systematic theology. And the first systematic theology that anybody made in this kind of way in a modern sense, the first part of that was all about the nature of God, the nature of man. The second part is all about sin and morality and how we should live. Third part is all about the nature of Christ, the atonement, the theology of the sacraments, that sort of thing, just like you would find in a the systematic theology nowadays. Um, earliest part of his of this, of this, of this summa, of his complete theology, He'd argued for the difference between essential and accidental qualities of things. But what he's talking about here is that essential qualities are the things that are true about something's essence, its core being. This is what it is deep in itself, in its core definition of what it means to be that thing. That's its essence, that's its essential qualities. Accidental qualities, from the word accident, which comes from the idea of to drop out of from. Accidental qualities are what's true about a thing nearly in a given context. Um, you could talk about the essential qualities of wood, but accidentally the wood can be turned into a chair or into a shelf or into a pulpit or into a door. There are essential things that are still true about the wood. For instance, it still burns. That's an essential quality of the wood. Not all wood is a chair. Not all wood is a shelf. Not all wood is a pulpit. Not all wood is a door. And so he said, God is the only thing in the universe whose essential and accidental qualities are exactly the same. Because there's no changing in God. Doesn't matter what context, doesn't matter what the situation, he's exactly the same all the time. He's the only thing in the universe that is. Something is good if it does what its essential purpose was. It's bad if it doesn't do what its essential purpose was. That's what good is, that's what bad is. And you might think, oh, that's bizarre, but you go... It still does apply outright. What, do we co- what is sin? What's the biblical word for sin? What's it referring to? To miss the mark. I was aiming for the mark. Did you hit it? That was, that was your essential purpose, was to hit the mark. You were created to honor Christ. Did you? No. Then that's bad, isn't it? You didn't do what you were created to do. You missed the mark. You didn't do what you were trying to do, right? That's bad. Evil is when you don't do what you were created to do. By the way, you were created to honor God. You are good when you honor God. You are bad when you don't, because you're not fulfilling your essential purpose. It's using weird words, but I sit there and go, no, no, it's, it's, it's a philosophical way of describing exactly what we talk about all the time. For example, God is both essentially and, act and accidentally utterly good, all the time. In his core essence and in everything he does all the time. Man is essentially sinful. We're broken on the inside. But accidentally, we sometimes do good. When I say accidentally, it doesn't mean well. It was an accident. The way he's using the accidental word, there are times when we do good things, but it doesn't come out of our essential goodness, but out of the fact that in this context we did something that God actually designed us to do. Okay, various of you are frowning. Why? Man is essentially good, and there we have God
1: created us initially.
0: Yep. And there are some groups that believe that. Most, um, yeah, I'll well, say it this way. Um, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be Randy since he's not here. A good Calvinist would say, no, you're all born in the original sin. You're all essentially broken. You are totally depraved. At our core, we have this sin nature that we need to be able to surrender to God. We are not born sinless. We're not born pure. We're born broken. We have to, we have to but we're broken
1: because of Adam's sinning and Adam Adam sure. created.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, to me, our core nature, what, what the way God created us, the accidental, our purpose, I would say, is to sin. And we're still born because, born sinful because of the
0: going bottom line. I but I guess
1: I still would see that as the accidental part of
0: it. It, I, I see how you're applying that. Um, yeah. we, we're born with a purpose to do good. And sometimes we do do evil.
1: Well, we still always do evil, but I still think what God breathed into us, God did not create us to do evil. So to me, the essential, the spirit, the thing inside of us is the way God created us, is what he breathed into us. He did not breathe into us to sin. We are all broken. Mm
0: -hmm. So the imago, maybe I'll break it up this way just so we can move on. The imago Dei in us, the image of God that we are created to fulfill, is itself essentially good. The sin nature that all of us are born with, I, mean, I don't even the whole idea of original sin, but all of us, um, I'll say specifically before we even know Christ, all of us are sinners. No one is good, no one not born, no one God is good, yada yada. So our essential human nature is to be sinful. And he doesn't break out those two as, as two different qualities. But for the sake of argument, I'll, I'll say it that way. That that the imago Dei in us would be essentially good, the human nature in us would be essentially evil. We accidentally do good, we accidentally do evil. Not accident like we didn't mean to, accident like it's contextual. Sometimes we do good, sometimes we don't. But when we get to Calvin in the fall, uh, when it gets, when we get to Calvin, he'll say, no, you don't even accidentally do good. You never do good. Ever. You are incapable of good in any shape or form because it's always tainted. Different things He used this when discussing things like transubstantiation. He said, okay, communion elements are essentially the blood and body of Jesus Christ. They're just, what? Accidentally wine and bread. In their core essence, they really are, you are genuinely ingesting the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Not spiritually. No, physically. Genuinely. Absolutely. In every sense of the term, that is literally, physically, spiritually, essentially the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. You have to eat him and drink him or you will lose your salvation. You have to do that on a regular basis. It just looks like, in this context, bread and water. But it's really blood and flesh. This is the core understanding of this. But do you see how this accidental essential thing helps explain how we can see it? And you go, it smells like bread. It acts like bread. If you cut my stomach open, it's bread. It's bread. And he goes, yeah. Everything matters. I would say, well, no, the first question in my area was going to see the other way around. It's essentially wanted bread, but in this case, this
1: is rice pudding.
0: Or even in this case, it is it is taking the symbolic place of blood and, and, and flesh. Is that what you're getting at? Because it it's in its essence one thing, but it is in this context acting in this capacity. Is that what you're getting at? Or yeah, I, well, he does everything. Yes. The, the, the only reason I'm clarifying that is because, like again, if you cut somebody open, it doesn't you, you don't find blood and flesh in the means so I mean it. That's why say yep.
1: essentially. Rather
0: than why Because they
1: Yes. <laughs> Serious?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there was a, a priest that, to prove his point, um, when somebody died right after taking communion, he cut them open and said, "Look, it's flesh and blood and it's crud." So. Oh. Pardon me. Yeah. You got to be a gutsy priest to do that, by the way.
1: I'm not okay. I'm not arguing. He, Nick, yes, he did. He did. Okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not arguing for transubstantiation,
0: and right. I think Thomas Aquinas came up in an extremely novel way. I think so never has something. So, listen. Never has so unjust a cause so nobly presented. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wholeheartedly disagree with where he came. He's so much smarter than I am, and yet he's wrong. Um, I, I, I really could not disagree with him more on, on the concept of transubstantiation. And yet, I think he explains it elegantly, and I see where he's going with it. There is a verse in Scripture where are talking about, my flesh is real flesh, my blood is real blood, and you go, but if you look at that in this context, and you look at the context of the fact that nothing else in Scripture ever suggests we do it this way, there's no reason to take that verse in that context, though that is one that they were totally in their hat on. So, I, I don't want to be dismissive of it, but i good exegetical reasons to go, I don't buy into, into transubstantiation.
1: But that's why it's so central to the Catholic faith. In large
0: part, yeah. Well, and, and they, they've been preaching this for a while, but Thomas Aquinas gave it a sincerely smart intellectual philosophical basis. Alright. Thomas Aquinas, though, started through that. Stopped writing suddenly, before he finished his third section of the Summa. Just stopped. And his friend Reginald says, don't keep going, finish it, finish it, finish it. Thomas says, Reginald, i because because all that I've written seems like straw. It's just pointless. It's nothing. Never explained why, never wrote another thing. Now, there's a gazillion different reasons why people say that he did this. There's um there's a tradition that he had an image from Christ and a vision of Christ while he was floating while meditating, and I'm not kidding. Somebody walked into a, the chapel while he was he was he was meditating and they found him floating in the air, and Jesus was talking to him and said, you're done now. Um, Other people will say he he, he successfully debated the Alvaroas and all these different people, only to find that other heresies popped up. He's just like, I could spend my whole life playing whack-a-mole with heresies, and more are still going to keep popping up. Um, Or that uh, one thing is that people are now beginning to quote Aquinas all over the place, out of context and badly? Is, wait, I worked this hard and wrote it all down, and you guys are doing sound bites out of context? I don't know why. I have no idea why. There's a lot of things that people argue as to why. But for whatever reason, he's like, oh, I'm done. I refuse to write another thing. The quote
1: to me reminds me of enthusiasm. It seems like
0: straw to me. I've reached the peak and it's all And Maybe that's it. Maybe he was doing a Bible study in Ecclesiastes, because supposedly his last words he was doing commentary on the Song of Songs. So maybe he was. Maybe he's in the wisdom literature. Maybe he wrote Ecclesiastes and went, I am not as wise as Solomon, and Solomon said, you can write all the books in the world. They don't mean nothing if they don't get it. So, same here. Quintus is invited to the second council of Leo, the last time you will see this graphic (laughs) for a council. So he's he's invited to the Second Council of Lyon. Other attendees included James, or Jaume, of Aragon, right? And an ambassador from the new Byzantine Emperor, Michael VIII, that we talked about last time. And even an ambassador from the Khan in Persia. This is going to be the council to go to. And so we want to get Thomas Aquinas to go there, too, because he's he's the god. So... While Aquinas himself was riding his donkey on the way to the council, he hit his head on a branch and died from his injuries. Now, I'm not sure what he was doing, because it's not like he's galloping there on his donkey. You know, I, I don't know if the branch just fell on him as he wrote down. I don't know if he was reading a book, because apparently he walks, he's he got an espresso and a book at all times. I don't know, but hit his head on a branch and, and uh, collapsed... Went to a nearby monastery, thought he got better, but just kept having headaches and being tired. Basically, got himself a concussion. And it wasn't treated as anything other than to take a rest. And very soon he died, which is a shame. Because he died thinking everything he'd ever done was strong. Utterly pointless. And yet, arguably ushered in everything that we can talk about when we talk about the Renaissance as we come back. This whole idea of saying, stop, think, what can we pull from the past? How can we incorporate this in the future? But just, I will say, and I'll say this as we begin the next section, just like people will say, oh, the Dark Ages, about the Middle Ages, and you go, there's a lot of stuff going on there, and a lot of luminaries during the Dark Ages. And again, I'll say, medicine during the Dark Ages was better than it was during the Renaissance. And certainly better than it has been up until the 20th century. So... The Dark Ages weren't that dark. And the Renaissance is amazing. And yet, some really, really dark things going on in the Renaissance. So, try not to get too caught up with some of these slapped-on labels and things. And yet, we'll still call it the Renaissance. Because it is a rebirth of a lot of knowledge that the Catholic Church had suppressed for years. But we'll come back to that. Now, as I said at the very beginning... When we come back in the fall, I am happy to start with the Renaissance, start in the 14th century and move on to other stuff. That's great. Um, I will also say that we've been we've been doing this for like two years now. We keep taking breaks in it, which is why it's this last but I'm gleefully happy to do a Bible book, too. I mean, we do Bible study in our, in our small group. We obviously teach from Scripture in, in, uh, in, in the service. But I really like having an interactive Bible class too, as opposed to a Kevin talking at you from history class. Um, so if you remember, we used to do interactive Bible Sunday school classes too. So um, I, I'm not saying we're going to ditch history class. I'm just asking you to pray and think about it and get back to it. I've already gotten we've already gotten one vote for what, what what people might want. I'd love to get your input. And Lucius is like, I don't need anything about it. I will one. Dump this history crap. Um, she didn't say that. <laughs> she said, Yay, Bible. Uh not n- not, not boo history. Uh, <laughs> but but I'd really appreciate it. If you would pray chew on it and, and give me some feedback as to if you say, I, I would really like to keep going, that's great. I'm happy to do it because I, I love history. If you say, No, right, we we'll could take another break, that'd be fun. And 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 do a Bible book. That would be awesome. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for those who have gone before us. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to not only be part of your church, but to be part of the church um, longitudinally. We're connected to all these people that have gone 2,000 years, 4,000 years, 6,000 years before us. And we're connected to all the people who will come after us. Our lives affect things and are affected by things. So I pray, Lord, give us wisdom to not only learn from what has come before learn from this and understand it not just as interesting tidbits of knowledge but to understand the context of everything we're doing now but then also help us to realize that subsequent generations are going to learn from us and how and why we do what we do so i pray lord help us to live instead of living in an artificial bubble of the now help us lord to see ourselves as part of something much much larger than just our homes, just this church, just the church worldwide now, the church worldwide, from eternity to eternity. We give all this to you, Lord. Pray, use it in us. In Jesus' name, amen.